Before we begin, just to let you guys know, our logo artwork was designed by Nicole Anarchy and music by Taylor Paisley French. Warning, this podcast does contain spoilers for the Verse series. Hello everyone and welcome to the Best Damn Camp, a Royal Reverse read-along and analysis podcast that sets out to read all the books by Rick Riordan in timeline order. I'm your host Fran and welcome to the show. Today we continue our timeline journey with the next story in the Heroes of Olympus saga, Son of Neptune. But not only that, I am joined by a special guest who you may have heard recently on the finale of The Throne of Fire. It's Megan of the Monstrous Women podcast. Megan, hello! (laughs) Hi, I'm so happy to be back. And really <laughs> I'm so never happy have to have left. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> In a sense, yes, but also glad to have you here again. And it's a big chunk, so I'm I'm very grateful for you having read this huge chunk of a story <laughs> section. <laughs> I was glad to do it. I missed Percy, so it didn't feel long. That is fair enough. That is very accurate also. Um, but tell everyone who is listening who you are, what you do, all that good stuff. I co-host the Monstrous Woman podcast with my friend Quinn, and it is a feminist media critique podcast. So we look at popular media from Greek myths to Harry Potter to fairy tales, and we look at women or feminine monsters who were treated really poorly in those stories and examine why and like track it throughout time. And it's very fun. Um, and so you can listen to that on most big uh, podcatching platforms and then also I'm an author and so if you want to hear more about that you can follow me on Instagram at Megan Peterson writes very nice and of course all of that will be in the episode show notes or the description box down below for wherever you are listening so be sure to follow all of that stuffs on the socials there but um yes we are starting a brand new book so uh it's heroes of olympus related so if you've been here from the beginning you will know exactly how this is going to go down but for those who don't remember here is a reminder that i do things a little bit differently with heroes of olympus because it's so fucking long (laughs) I will be separating the episodes by story breaks with individual overviews between the characters' sections instead of just the individual two chapters I was doing previously. So this week, we'll be going over the section on going to Camp Jupiter, also known as our intro from pages 1 to 100. And yes, it's a big section, but there's a lot of story happening here, so it's all good. But as always, we have our points to focus on. So today, we've got openings, characters, and generally, what we thought of it. So let's dive in. All right, so of course, everyone, this is our Percy chapters. There are four cha- There are four Percy chapters in this opening section. So uh, are we doing the overview for those four chapters? And it is as follows. 
Percy has returned, but he has no memory of his past beyond Annabeth and has been on the run from monsters for days. Facing undying gorgons, Percy makes a final stand and goes down a mountain with deadly style, but manages to survive and find a woman named June in need of help. Running with an old woman on his back, he finds two young Roman soldiers at a hidden entrance who help him fight back the monsters. Losing his Achilles' gift as he crosses the river, he brings June to the other side and saves the Roman Frank from dying by using his ocean powers. His abilities revealed, June shows herself in her true form as Juno, the Roman goddess, and she warns this Camp Jupiter and Percy that this camp is in danger and will be attacked soon. Meeting with Rainer, leader of the camp, who seems to know him, Percy reveals he knows nothing of his past. Believing him, Rainer sends him to a reader of fates to decide his. Heading out with Hazel, the other Roman at the gate, he learns that his godly parent, Neptune, is not loved in Rome, as well as that demigods live long and happy lives in New Rome. Who could have thought demigods could live? Meeting Octavian, a creepy blackmailing bear killer, Percy is accepted into the Legion, but he's not sure he's happy to hear that. After feeling queasy about Octavian, a strange occurrence happens when Percy meets Hazel's brother, an odd boy called Nico D'Angelo. <laughs> I'm definitely excited to hear your thoughts on this Nico D'Angelo <laughs> bit, because like, for everyone who's listening, um, Megan specifically asked for this section. <laughs> They were like, whichever part has the introduction of Nico, that's mine. <laughs> so, yes. Go ahead. I just, I, I have heard a lot of people say that they were frustrated by Nico when they first like read this and realized that he wasn't going to like tell Percy what's going on. And that didn't occur to me ever when I read this. I was immediately like, yes, Nico, lie to Percy do what you must like you clearly are smarter than everybody else here and you like know what's going on to a, a a higher degree and so like you do what you need to do you know you're just carrying the fate of the world in your hands and like i'm here for you as your support system um but i also think it's really funny like when i reread it this morning i think knowing because like having read house of hades and then going back and reading this now you can like see how much he loves percy too and how like He's so cool and calm and collected at Camp Jupiter because they don't know, like, baby Nico, like, pre-being emo Nico, or, like, what happened in his past. So he can, like, present himself how he wants to at Camp Jupiter. That all goes to shit as soon as he sees Percy. He, like, can't cope. And it was so cute. <laughs> he he truly had – oh, God, what was that? You watched Heartstopper, didn't you? Because, mm -hmm. like, Robert asked us all to. What's the phrase that – um? Nick says, "I'm oh, I he was having a full on gay crisis. Nico, yes. Nico was having a full on gay crisis. <laughs> it reminded me so much of in the end of or in Blood of Olympus in the beginning of the book when he like breaks Percy out of jail, like makes Percy mad, and they get in that like little scuffle and everything. I feel like it's a similar moment to Nico of just like, why cannot this boy not stop antagonizing me? Like, why can he not stop ruining my life by giving me like a gay crisis?" <laughs> that's just Percy, isn't it? That's just that's just what he does. But yeah, actually, yeah. you bring a good point. Like, I know I was definitely like somewhat frustrated with the whole Nico like not saying anything, but 
I, I wouldn't say like I was frustrated with it, but I was just very confused because like this boy clearly knows what's going on, but is not sharing. <laughs> Like, yeah. he's shared some stuff as we find out in like Hazel's chapters in the next bit of like he's told everyone but no one's listening but at the same time I'm kind of like okay but what extent have you told because clearly there's a little bit more that you're holding back <laughs> and now I kind of like come on now <laughs> sharing is caring <laughs> but I guess he is an emo so like maybe right. emos like don't share I don't know I don't know what emos do I just like blindly trust Nico so I was like he's making the right decision 100% like it's for the greater good that he doesn't reveal this information because he would if it was helpful like like in Blood of Olympus he went to a lot of effort to like tell Percy about the curse of Achilles and like get that all set up um so that they had a shot so I feel so I was like blind trust That is fair. Oh, actually, can we talk, like, minor aside from the Nico thing, can we talk about the Curse of Achilles bit and the fact that that is removed in the third chapter in, like, Percy has full-on lost his Curse of Achilles, like, it's gone, and it was the stupidest goddamn thing I've ever read. It just, it, this... (sighs) This is why Percy and Annabeth should not have been in Heroes of Olympus. Because the yeah. we know that the only reason he's losing the Achilles curse is because he needs to be on the same level as the rest of the seven. That's the only reason. <laughs> and it's stupid. <laughs> it makes no sense. Even the reason why it's being removed doesn't make sense. It's like, oh, you're crossing through a Roman river. You can't have a Greek thing because you're crossing a Roman river. That makes no sense. <laughs> Yeah, it. I mean, Rick had just powered up his main character so intensely he had to do something to get him to an equal playing field, especially because Juno had dropped the whole, like, things are going to get so much worse for you uh, t- warning, like, six times in this ch- in these chapters. I I agree that Percy and Annabeth, the way it was set up, like, it, it doesn't work very well for Heroes of Olympus. They had, Rick had to do so much of this kind of a thing to make it fit. I feel like Percy's journey definitely could have concluded in, like, a very satisfying way based on um, the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series. I do think Annabeth gets very good character development and, like, had more to do with her character. I think I would have had her be the one who loses her memory and has to, like, be with Lupa and, like, unite the camp and all of that um, rather than Percy being that role for the Greeks just because I like I really like Annabeth's character development in Heroes of Olympus I don't feel like Percy has any character development in Heroes of Olympus I feel like he just maintains his which was very very good from the first series I mean I love him as a character but I just don't think it makes sense to keep him as like a main 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 character when you've already spent five books developing him and overpowering him yeah, that's definitely like I de- I definitely agree with you. I think Annabeth has some really great characterization in this, and it would have been cool if it, she had been like the especially considering like this whole thing of like Percy being here and being a son of Neptune is like bad luck. That would also work with Annabeth, considering that her being a daughter of Athena is looked down upon by the Romans because they look down upon. I've forgotten what her name changes to in Roman mythology. It begins with an M. Minerva. What was it? Minerva, that's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they don't like Minerva, they basically like downgrade her. So it definitely would work. Like, I definitely would have been fine with her being in Heroes of Olympus, like having her. 
this is the thing. I well, I would have loved to her. Uh, uh, I would have loved to have her as a mentor character in this series. Like, I don't really care about Percy. I don't think he's a great mentor, but I think Annabeth could have been a really great mentor. Like, have her be in that. Have her get some growth. Have like see her grow as a character. But I'm always in the mindset that Nico should have been the one who was like amnesia at Camp Jupiter. Like he should have been in Percy's position instead. That would be so interesting because it would have made Nico so vulnerable. And that is the thing he's most uncomfortable with. Yes, but he wouldn't remember that. So he could have actually become more open because he wouldn't have this tragedy of his past holding him down because he would have no memory of it okay this segues into something i want to talk about because percy is like it wasn't hard for me to accept that i was a demigod like i know that's not normal but it wasn't hard for me to accept so how much of his memories are taken is it just the demigod stuff because how does he know what is normal if he doesn't have any memories because he doesn't remember his mom, so clearly all of his life was taken. So what does he mean that the demigod thing was hard to accept? He shouldn't have known whether that was hard to accept or not. Yeah, the the amnesia plot lines make no sense to me because it was a similar situation with Jason. Like he had like basic like instinct stuff, and then maybe some hints of memory of like Raina, as we find out. But like. You have to have some kind of memory of something because otherwise you would like be you'd basically be like a newborn child of no retentive memory, nothing, no capability of looking after yourself beyond instinct. Like you're gonna have like this is the whole thing for Percy, <laughs> for him to be in the story, all they could have done is wipe everything from the age of twelve uh, from twelve onwards and just have the bits of him being at school within that period of time remove all the monsters remove all the adventures because he still goes to school keep those memories but like just remove everything else that's demigod related jason's a little bit more difficult understandably because like he was with wolves from like age two (laughs) and then in rome from then on but with percy it just made no sense that he had no memory of anything because he's not always been a demigod He's not always been in the demigod world. It just feels a bit like a plot right. hole. Yeah, I just don't feel like it because it's at, at times it seems like they just took the demigod stuff, but then you know he doesn't remember Sally. So that feels not offensive. <laughs> like, how can you forget Sally? How could he? It's like Rick doesn't know how much the fandom loves that woman. <laughs> Literally, we love that he remembers Annabeth, but his own mother he's forgotten? I mean,. She raised it. Like, how do, How does he not know anything? This is, it just makes no sense to me. Like, he could remember his mum, just maybe not remember where he lives. Simple enough <laughs> for him to not go back to yeah. where he lives. I just feel like amnesia plot lines aren't a good idea. <laughs> yeah, they're just, especially ones where it's like they're making it out that they have no memory. And it just, that logically, for someone to have no memory... They would just like, I don't know, admittedly, I don't know much about amnesia, but it just feels like it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, and yeah, the amnesia plot line is kind of dumb. But what I did like was the development of the friendship that seemingly is already starting between Percy, Hazel, and Frank. That is so well done. 
like in comparison to the fuck no, the shit fest i was about to say the fuck fest but that's a completely different connotation <laughs> the shit fest that is the quote-unquote friendship of the lost hero this is so well done i just i'm so thrilled with how it's done i wholeheartedly agree i think that percy and hazel's relationship is one of the most underrated friendships because you actually see it develop and i think him and frank as well like it's it's a very good dynamic percy's a very good friend of frank and it's very sweet but with hazel you see him like take on an older camper role i wouldn't say a mentor role but like an older brother kind of in a way that we haven't seen percy do before um And it's really, really sweet to see him behave that way and not like be infantilizing, but just be like super supportive. Um, And I think it's also just like Percy is kind of at his best when he is a underdog and he hasn't been for a while. You know, he he became the most popular kid at camp and kind of like ran everything with Annabeth. And and I don't want to say like it's not good when Percy's life is going well, but it kind of isn't as good when Percy's life is going well for the writing. So to see him back in with, like, the underdogs with Hazel and Frank is so cute because he's so good at, like, staying encouraging through that. Yeah, I loved his moment where it's it's in the later, in Hazel's chapters, where they're at dinner and, like, both Hazel and Frank are talking about the things that, like, they really want to do but are being discouraged from. Um, and Percy immediately hypes them up. And yeah, he takes on fully like a big brother sort of role to the two of them and kind of looks out for them. And I just really appreciate it because it's just, it shows how good he is as a person. Like he has this compassionate side to him, which I feel like we saw throughout Percy Jackson and the Olympians. But I don't think we ever saw it as much as I would have liked to kind of show why people follow him. By showing him being this attentive, kind-hearted, fun guy who cares about others feelings and like cares about making other people feel better about themselves i think that shows a really good side to percy and i definitely agree his and hazel's relationship is so underrated like and the main reason why it's underrated is because basically this is the only book where they have that relationship and it's this is what kind of pisses me off a little bit about heroes of olympus is that in the case mainly to do with this book with Percy, Hazel, and Frank. They have the best dynamic of the seven. And this is the only book where we have that dynamic. Like it very quickly goes away the moment Annabeth comes back into the picture. And then the whole love triangle bullshit <laughs> that comes in with Hazel, Leo, and Frank. Like that was the worst writing possible. Like there are so many characters of the seven who never interacted with each other. And there are so many characters who interacted before who stop interacting. Like Jason, Leo, and Piper never stop being the quote-unquote friends that they were at the start. But Frank, Percy, and Hazel don't stay connected, whereas theirs was actually more organic of a friendship. And it just makes me sad. Yeah, it makes me sad too, because I we got so much of Percy and Annabeth in the Percy Jackson the Olympian series that I wanted to see them interact with other people. And I wanted to see, like, Annabeth form friendships as well on her own. And we don't see that much. We only see it with Piper at the end. And it kind of feels like Rick, like, forgot to do that. So he puts it in the last book. Um, I do, if you were to read Percy as white, which is absolutely up to the reader. um, Because Percy could be whoever you want him to be. But I think he does a good job of leveraging his privilege with 
Hazel and Frank, um, with Hazel being like a young black girl and Frank being a young Asian man, of just being like, no, you don't have to let people like tell you who to be because he's had so much immunity to that. I mean, reading Percy's White, like he's been kicked out of all these schools and he's like a New York City kid, but he does get away with so much. And like he has a mom's boyfriend who like helps him get into a good school even after this bad record. Like that happens to white kids. You know, that doesn't happen to BIPOC kids. And so he has the like privilege and um, luck of getting to like stand up for himself and like have a good support system. And also like when Percy does anything mildly impressive, everybody thinks he's like the greatest thing to ever exist, which definitely helps with your confidence. And so it's really nice to see him be like, no, no, everybody should get to do that. And I don't think he necessarily has like a an on the page awareness of why he can lend that kind of power to people. But it is really nice to see that he's not just using it for himself, but he's like, no, like you should get to ride a horse and like, you should get to shoot a bow and arrow, like do whatever the fuck you want. I have, and it's worked out. (laughs) Yeah. He's using his status as this really powerful demigod in the case of the series to uplift others. And that's just kind of the person he is, which I really appreciate because I feel like that got lost quite a bit in the original series there were moments of that but it doesn't really happen as much so seeing his growth from that series here and him using what he's learned basically which is why i really wanted percy and annabeth to be mentor characters in this series because i feel like that would work so much like it's basically already there right now like he's mentoring these kids in the sense of like he's giving them this confidence giving them this confidence helping them get confidence in themselves based on his past experiences and it's kind of I really like that and I like the idea of him being a mentor as well as Annabeth yeah and I think it would put them more on a level with Reina and I think they kind of deserve that especially Annabeth um because Reina like she doesn't go on the quests until she's like needed because it gets that serious and she's more has like a leadership managing type role um, and like Raina put her time in to become Praetor and is so talented and wonderful. And Annabeth also put her time in to become like a uh, pseudo leader of Camp Half Blood. And I feel like if there was more structure to Camp Half Blood and like it was run better, then they would have like realized that Annabeth is in a leadership position now and like doesn't need to be literally the one like going on quests so much. Um, but they don't have that structure. So her and Percy, they're just like, well, they're good at it. So we'll just keep sending them. <laughs> yeah. And this is the whole thing. I also think like Rainer is a really interesting character. And the things that we're introduced to hear about her is really interesting. But I definitely feel like she should have been older, if I'm honest. Her being 16 makes no logical sense to me. Like from kind of slightly skipping ahead with some things towards the Hazel chapters. Um, they talk about in, in Hazel chapter to do with how the Legion works that you do 10 years of service and most of the kids who end up in New Rome are like 12, 13 years old. So that means that there should be members of the Legion in their early 20s. Why are none of them <laughs> leading this? Because they're adults. Like Rainer is 16 and has the entire weight of an entire army and all the people living in like the city that they have in New Rome that has the responsibility of keeping them safe on her 16 year old shoulders and it's just it's wild to me like I feel like she should have been at least like 18 19 like have her be older have her have this experience this ache of all this sort of stuff that happened in the past I don't know it just like 
it's similar with the whole Percy and Annabeth thing. They should, all should have been older. They all should have been these mentor roles. Having them be kids still makes no sense to me. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, one, I think the answer to why Raina's in this position is because she's a girl boss and you just can't turn that off. You know, you're just going to keep overachieving and putting yourself in positions to be burnt out. But secondly, I think Raina definitely reads older. Like when it's not on the page, like right in front of me, I read her as like 18, 19 for sure. Like definitely older than, and I think I even read Annabeth as older too, honestly, because I feel like they're very much equals, but they feel like they're like, like it's weird to me that after this whole series ends, like Percy and Annabeth go back to high school. I don't understand (laughs) how that's possible. Yeah, no, I just, yeah. But th- this is more me just talking about the things that I would have changed. Like, full on, I would have had them already be, like, finishing college. <laughs> like, age mm. for when this series is about. But that's that's a conversation for another day. Uh, one thing I do want to talk about the, for this chapter, just because it's, like, came to my mind as I was reading it. Because it makes no sense. Unless I'm missing something. <laughs> and it is the fact that in the opening chapter where... Percy's talking about these Gorgon sisters coming after him and saying that he is a son of a Roman god. And I looked it up. The Gorgons were specifically Greek myth-related. Like, I'm sure there's probably a Roman version of them, but they are Greek (laughs) in origin. So why are they referring to him being the son of a Roman god when they are Greek in origin? Yeah, that is very strange. I do believe, based on the research that I did many months ago for our Medusa episode on my podcast that you were actually on, um, I think Ovid did rewrite Medusa's myth in Metamorphosis, so there is a Roman version of it. Um, and so I think, and I, I do get the impression that that specific version is what Rick is drawing his inspiration from because it's the worst retelling of the myth (laughs) and Rick handles Medusa spectacularly bad um but I do think it's very odd that the that like just because they're in California they like are Roman oriented because they're Greek monsters and that that to me is just very messy of like how do the monsters and like all these villains that the kids interact with throughout the whole first series how do they not know about both camps or do they just keep the secret for the gods and like why would they do that why are not more monsters like alerting the kids to the fact that there's another camp and trying to like stir up the divide between the greeks and the romans faster because it seems like that would be in their interest no totally agree and also just popping up into my mind in the lost hero when jason meets uh, Boreas, the like North Wind God, he's in his Greek form when he first meets him until Jason starts speaking, and then he changes into his Roman form. If the Gorgon sisters are in their Roman form because they are near Roman demigods, when they meet Percy, they should have changed into their Greek form and be calling him a Greek demigod, based on the logic of the law that has been previously set out. Like every time, in a sense, Jason interacted with a god, he would set off their like split mind of their different personalities because he was a Roman demigod interacting with Greek myth. Like the same should, in a sense, be happening with Percy. But from what I remember, it does not happen in this book. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, I think Rick 
was like trying to just allude and infer that there were two camps the whole time with Jason. So he like put the effort in. And then because the audience knows, it feels like he a little bit forgot to do it with Percy, even though Percy still doesn't know. Um, Because yeah, and like Medusa interacted with Percy and called him son of Poseidon. And these are her sisters. So why would they have a different understanding of who the gods were? Yeah. The lo- the logic is not logicking, and it's just yeah. The, I mean, this whole first section definitely read of like Rick's kind of gone. Oh, they've read the first book; they know all of this. So I'm just going to quickly dump it all out because there's that also that whole section of um, talking about um, Gaia, like in a huge info dump about Gaia's involvement and her being the patron of the monsters and all this sort of stuff, like. It took us a whole book <laughs> to learn that in The Lost Hero. And they're just kind of like, quick, one paragraph dump. And like, considering we meet Juno, we meet Raina, all these sort of things where this kind of information is reintroduced by them. It Why bring it up then? Just bring it up later and have that be the information that occurs later on. Or even like have Juno mentioned about Gaia. Or even when they have those war games in that instant of like uh, a demigod is killed but not really in those games. And we have Mars, I think it is, up here. Have the Gaia information then reinstated at that point by a god who is introducing a new quest because of Gaia and the giants. Like, it just felt really random to kind of info dump that in like the first chapter when it's then brought up again in the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. (laughs) And yeah, it's like, just I do it once. <laughs> it's it's very much a, a trope or, like, standard of fantasy series like this, especially ones oriented around kids where you're assuming that they can't remember between the books what was happening. To, like, spend the first, like, three chapters somehow restating everything. Like, you have to summarize the entire book. And I don't think that's necessary at all. One, I think kids are smarter than they're given credit for and they don't need that much catch-up. And two, I think if you just do it naturally with, like, the progression of the story, then they'll remember things as they need to. And, like, that's a totally acceptable way to read the book. Um, Yeah, I feel like in this section, Rick just missed Percy so much. And you can tell that. Because it's also, like, in in a lovely way, it's really, like, joke-heavy. Like, there were a few moments where I was like, that was legitimately hilarious. Like, I I actually didn't even, like, roll my eyes. It was just funny, like... um, when Percy's arguing with the Gorgons, it, or no, he's about to cross the river, and they're like, all roads lead here, and he's like, detention? And things like that. Like Rick hasn't been able to do that thing that he's good at and that he built a whole series off of for so long with The Lost Hero, and I think he's just so happy to have Percy back that maybe some of his other skills went out the window a little bit. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. You could definitely tell that he was enjoying writing from Percy. And, like, there were definitely bits of it. Like, I feel like he tried to do the Percy comedy with Leo, but it just did not work. Like, so many people find Leo to be, like, a fan favourite or, like, a really funny character. And all I can think is, like, he's just kind of a dickhead. Like, he's not particularly nice (laughs) as a character. I hate Leo. I hate him so much. Don't worry. His main personality trait is being misogynistic. I I can't cope with that. I can't. There's no. no version of that. But a lot of people do love him and, like, really don't like that take. But I'm sorry. I just cannot get on board with him. He's the worst. 
And I don't like Jason at all, but I just feel nothing towards Jason. I, like, actively dislike Leo. And I kind of feel nothing towards Frank. <laughs> um, yeah. I was going to say, I think that's the consensus for Frank. Not many people. And this is the problem also. Rick introduced so many characters. And then, like, this... Also, just slightly jumping ahead to Blood of first. I love Nico and Raina. They should not have had chapters in that book. They should not have had POVs. Because... We're immediately taking away focus from the actual, like, main prophecy of the seven and taking away, like, there was chances for Frank and Hazel to have moments in those books. And I just felt like by taking away POVs from these characters who hadn't really had many POVs in the series as a whole, it was just kind of disappointing Um, because Frank and Hazel got the worst of it. And they're the ones who are barely remembered by fandom or barely cared about like those are the two who are like on the lowest in terms of talked about discussed all these sort of things on like big fandom scales like jason is just because like there's the stupid memes about the bricks and stuff piper is because like you know aphrodite and all that leo because people for some reason think he's hilarious percy and annabeth obvious reasons nico gay Raina, cool <laughs> there were these things about it, but I always felt like Hazel and Frank were kind of left behind. But they were also left behind in the narrative a lot. And I felt like you can tell a lot of that in the series. I just felt like Rick kind of forgot about them and changed their story so much as well. Not to get, I won't talk about it too much because I'm getting way too ahead of myself, but they, he definitely kind of changed their story. Like, for, considering their starting points here of like Hazel being stuck in the past quite literally as we find out in the next section and trying to figure out who she is and what direction she wants to go in and what kind of person she wants to be and Frank being this sort of kind-hearted guy who doesn't have much confidence in himself doesn't have much confidence in his abilities and doesn't really know what kind of person he is either all of that is very quickly forgotten and they go in completely different directions and they don't really have any arcs which sucks. Um, I said I wasn't going to get ahead of myself, but I did. <laughs> yeah, I agree that I think Frank and Hazel are left behind the most. Um, and with Frank, it feels a little more understandable because he's not a super exciting character. And then his entire arc is like becoming toxically masculine, even though he wasn't initially. And I don't understand how that's growth. Um But with Hazel, I feel like she's fantastic. Like, her introduction is so cool. Her her first, like, major thing that you see from her is the fact that she takes on the Gorgons by herself. Um, And she's 13. She's the youngest. Which should indicate to you how powerful she is. And then she has this, like, crazy backstory that you get into. And just, like, the little things of the fact that, one, she's really kind. We see that. Two, she's, like, super accepting of all people, even though she's from the past, which is very sweet. And she has, like, this weird curse and this, like, hidden backstory, and she's, like, a child of Pluto. She's so interesting. I don't understand how she got dropped off. Yeah, it's kind of sad. But actually, just speaking about Hazel, let us head into the next four chapters of this story section, which are from Hazel's point of view. So, uh, Megan, take it away. Okay, so we start with Hazel being very worried about having Nico and Percy in close proximity as they are both clearly insanely powerful demigods. 
So after sending Percy on his way with Frank, she spends some time with her half-brother, where she learns that he does, in fact, know who Percy is. That was a little bit obvious, Nico. We hear that Gaia has stirred in the giants, created to defeat the gods after their attack on the titans, are rising and causing havoc in the underworld. It is here that we learn that Hazel is a special demigod, and she is not from this timeline. We find Hazel is from the 40s, a time of segregation that has Hazel hated by most everyone for not only being black, but also presenting cursed jewels wherever she went. But Sammy, her friend, is one who is always on her side. Uh, she learns more about her father, Pluto, and how it is through him that, he ga- that she gained the curse. Her mother, Marie, was a voodoo woman, but due to Hazel's curse, she lost business. She was possessed by a voice who tells them to head to the north, but things are not going well for Hazel's 13th birthday. Um, She's brought back to the present by Nico, and it's time to head to the evening muster. Hazel and Frank stand for Percy at the cohort claiming ceremony, which, as we later discover, isn't really that great for him, because the fifth cohort are considered cursed for losing their eagle on the Alaskan quest many years ago. Percy has taken the two of them and offers each of them a pep talk on their skills, making Hazel and Frank happy. We love to see mentor Percy. It is as they mellow that the call for the war games begins, and unfortunately, the fifth never win. Hooray, and I apologize for all the spelling errors in that overview on my side. I did not recognize half of them. That's okay, we got through it. But um, yeah, I oh god, I'm I loved Hazel's chapters. Like I love Percy and I love his introduction and all this sort of stuff. But Hazel's chapters is where I was the most interested. Like the amount of information we learned, the amount of backstory we get, just the character depth as well. Oh, I'm just I'm I'm obsessed with Hazel. I think she's amazing. But there is one thing I need to bring up, and that is the fact that she should be 14 years old. Like, based on the fact, so it's her 13th birthday on the 17th of December. Like, she has this flashback. She goes back to, I can't really even remember the year. But it's her 13th birthday. She came to Camp Jupiter in September. It is now June. (laughs) She should have turned 14 within her time at New Rome because she had her 13th birthday in the past. And she should already be 14. If not nearly 15, because I think she's like, they head up to Alaska, her and her mum. And I'm pretty sure they're there for a year. So she should be nearly 15. (laughs) And yet. And yet. And yet we have her saying that Frank is three years older than her. Which I do want to bring up that the age gap between Hazel and Frank The problem is not really what their actual textual ages is. The problem is Rick's intention. And Rick states pretty clearly in this book that his intention was for them to have a three-year age gap in their relationship. And that was something he was completely comfortable with. Um, And I, I definitely understand for people who love this relationship, like, you know, showing that that's not really the case and had canoning out of it and everything in there absolutely free to do that again it's fictional characters you can't really do harm here but it is I don't want to like give Rick credit because I think a lot of people um forget that she literally states that she's three years younger than Frank and so they're like oh Rick did it accidentally like he didn't mean that 
Um, and like you can see here and here, like the ages just get mixed up throughout the books. He's just bad at keeping track of ages, which he absolutely is bad at keeping track of ages. But he does actually intend for them to be that far apart in age. And he thinks like a 13 and a 16 year old dating is okay in this context. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nothing like I only ever bring up the, the errors that he has because an editor should have caught these. Rick should have caught these. Like it's, it's from an author perspective, it's maddening that there are so many errors with age. Because also, what, what day is it? Do we know what day it is <laughs> at this current point in the book? It's June at some point. Yeah, I know they're five days out from the Feast of Fortuna. Yeah, what day is the Feast of Fortuna? Because that's a good question, because I'm now just thinking, because Frank's birthday is the 5th of June, so he's only recently turned 16 as well. So also, the three years that he writes isn't even fucking accurate. (laughs) No, it's like a year and a half. It's two years. (laughs) Yeah, so it's just, like, it's even worse. It kind of, it makes it worse that he screwed up so much that not only was he okay okay with the three-year relationship age gap, but the book itself contradicts what he is also writing. Like, oh my God, I'm also going to need to Google when the Feast of Fortuna is because it actually is going to be maddening now. (laughs) I have a small aside while you do that. I just want to state for the record I think Reyna being upset at Percy is the most reasonable reaction, and I probably would have been more aggressive and angry about Percy if I were to see the person that literally ruined my life show up at my camp after I just worked really, really hard to rebuild it for myself and, like, pull myself out of that situation that they threw me into as a child. And I can't believe how calm and cool she is about it, and I can't believe how quickly she, like, moves on. I would have held an absolute grudge and thrown an absolute fit about it. Oh, yes. No, major props to Raina. And it's like, there are so many times that she should have been able to lose her temper. And it kind of makes me sad. This is why I kind of wish she was older, because there is so much that she's having to hold back. And it kind of hurts to see her have to hold these things back. Um, I've just found out about the Feast of Fortuna, by the way. So the Feast of Fortuna is on the 24th of June. And we are five days out from that. So it is the 19th of June. So Frank only turned 16 two weeks ago in book i feel like only hazel remembered his birthday yeah and actually he's not even been at camp very long he's been at camp for like a week i think at this point because he doesn't turn weeks which also then doesn't make any sense because he wasn't at camp for his birthday because he was at home because yeah (laughs) (laughs) damn it oh my god I mean, I just feel like I would have a very hard time keeping track of everything that Rick tries to keep track of. But, like, why did you set yourself up for something so complicated? And, like, you were mentioning, like, people really don't get enough POVs. You shouldn't create a cast of seven main characters and then still give other, like, still bring in other people to be major players. Like, if you want Reyna and Nico heavily involved, they need to be part of the seven. And, like, we all know that they're better characters than in my opinion, any of the other seven, except Annabeth. You know, so we could cut somebody else. We could cut Leo and Jason out and have Raina and Nico and keep Percy and Annabeth in the seven and everybody would be so happy. I can definitely see it. There's definitely, there was a way to go about this 
that would have worked. But yeah, there was definitely... There were, I looked it up at some point of like how many characters had POVs or something like that. I can't remember where I... Hold on. Heroes of Olympus POV list. Um, I think it lays out like how many chapters or how many books they got char- uh, they got POVs in. But now I'm not 100%. I'll bring it up later, actually, because there is a few. There's something actually I do want to get your thoughts um, on, and it's to do with Hazel's backstory of going back to the past and meeting Pluto. Because I don't mind Hades; he's a bit of a dick, but Pluto, honestly, to me, feels worse because of the way in which he talks about Marie. It's specifically the line of she hasn't told you everything oh it's fine make me the villain then i'm like bitch you are the villain in this story because you didn't actually tell queen marie the entire consequence of her wish you just said oh there will be consequences and she's like yeah okay but you didn't explain that the consequence would be a curse on a child that would bring her more misery than actual fortune like, you left all of that out. You are the villain because you lied. <laughs> you are to blame. You can't act like you're not. Yeah, the gods definitely don't understand informed consent, like, at all. And that's incredibly troubling. Um, and I think, I, I really dislike Pluto. I think the only thing that ever redeems Hades for me is later in this series when you can tell that he knew that Nico had a crush on Percy and, like, was supportive because... That I was like, okay, you're all right now. But other than that, I don't like have any affection for Hades. And Pluto, I have none at all. Like he's so much worse. He's racist. He like preyed on this vulnerable woman, um, and then ruined her life, and then tried to turn her daughter against her, and then is like a good dad for not like dragging his daughter down to the underworld and like ignoring her existence. That's not that's not enough to be a good father to me. I'm gonna I'm gonna claim a higher standard. I have a lot of feelings in general on on Hazel's backstory because it's, like, cool, but also I don't think Rick did a good job writing it because I think, like, her having the curse is very cool. Like, I think 100% keep that. Having your only black character be a girl from New Orleans whose mother is into voodoo, disgusting. And I think that goes similarly with all of his characters of color they just fit these like incredible broad stroke stereotypes in this uh series and that's like just do anything else like how can you not see them as like more than a stereotype and i think the fandom does very good of like like leaving that behind when we talk about characters and stuff but when you actually read the the text you get like harshly reminded of it And one thing that stuck out to me so much was how Hazel has this whole little paragraph about how the other black kids bullied her. And it was, like, so baffling to me because it just shows that Rick is not somebody with a major marginalized identity, so he can't understand solidarity. And the fact that if you are going to bring up Hazel being bullied in this context, the fact that you would make other black kids the bullies is so absurd to me and not in a like self-critical or like a critical way of um like exploring how like racism affects the community like within itself and like creates violence and things which is really black people's business and things we should leave to them to tell us about and teach us about but it's not even that it's just like them being mean and hazel being upset about it because he can't understand solidarity 
Yeah, and especially considering, like, so there's this whole bit to do with her on her birthday and going, uh, her friend Sammy, who is uh, Latin American, who works at this ranch with horses and it's a white-only club. There, there is, like, no reference to white people being racist in the entire backstory that Hazel has. The only time we see it is when they are in Alaska. And even then, there's no specification towards the fact that they are white. Like, it's just the local kids. Like, we can infer, but even then, like, just, like, there doesn't seem to... Like, they, they talk about the racism and the fact that she was going to a segregated school and it was the nuns uh, at school who were very racist and these sort of stuff. There's, like, a reference to it later on. But even then, like, there's no real reference to the racism that she experienced and the cruelty that she experienced at the hands of white people. Like, the things that she she is experiencing are all at the hands of other people of colour, at the hands of her mother, at the hands of her classmates. And it just, it does kind of feel weird that all the trauma that she's experiencing during segregation as a young black girl is from other black people. It just, it kind of, I don't know, it just, it read really weird to me. And like, yeah. especially now, like, <laughs> just kind of understanding a little bit more. When I first read the series, I kind of didn't pick up these things a bit more because I wasn't looking at it from an analytical edge. I was reading, ah, Greek and Roman mythology, ha ah, love it. But now I'm kind of, it just, it reads really weird. And you can tell he doesn't have the sensitivity readers. He wasn't really aware of these things. And it's just, it's odd. Yeah, I think the difference to me, though, is that Rick really wants to write about like black trauma, but he doesn't want to write about white complicity. And that's a weird dynamic. And, and it's an instinct that I think a lot of white people have where they want to talk about how awful segregation is. Like they want the trauma porn for sure. They don't want to be honest about why it was that way. And they still want to like distance themselves and they don't. And like, even though most white people don't strongly identify with being white because we are taught not to, at the end of the day, you do know that you are the villain of the story and you don't want to bring attention to that. Like, that's the instinct. But still, love to exploit black trauma. And like you said with his other characters of color, love to exploit BIPOC trauma in general. Yeah, the whole thing is, yeah. It's just, it's kind of messy. Um, and even like, okay, this isn't technically connected to it, but the line of Nico nearly calling Hazel Bianca kind of felt like an additional bit of like he's he is a white kid who is kind of putting this image of his other of his dead white sister onto this young black girl who is his half sister i just i know it was meant to be this sort of sad bit of you know he still misses his sister she's like you know she's not around they grew up together all these sort of things but hazel's like internal thought on this of like she'll never live up to it, she'll never be his real sister and stuff like that. Really, really hurt because it's just she doesn't have anyone. Like she thought she found a family member in Nico, but really, as we find out later, the only reason why he saved her is because he couldn't find Bianca. The only reason why he's staying connected with her is because he's, in a sense, looking for a replacement for Bianca in some way from how it's kind of reading. And she cares so much for him. But throughout the series, Nico never really returns it as much, in my opinion. 
and this is just kind of like one of those hinted moments where I feel like that kind of shows how he is towards her like he is seeing her as she as she put it herself as the next best thing but he doesn't really want her for her he just wants a sister because he misses Bianca yeah I think you're right about their relationship not really getting developed and becoming super um equitable and there's a weird power dynamic with Nico because Hazel only knows what Nico will tell her and she didn't ask to be brought back to life I know she I mean I think she is like glad that it happened ultimately but that was like Nico's decision that he made for her and then he controls what she knows um and how much of himself he shares and and some of that's going to be like older sibling younger sibling dynamics like growing up with my brother like we're very close in age like Nico and Hazel and we are very close um and there was that dynamic to a certain extent of like I only know what he thinks I should know but it's not on the same level and obviously there wasn't a, a race difference between us there wasn't like a marginalized identity dynamic within that um and I just feel like like Hazel is very very dependent on Nico and he's aware of that but he's fine with it and Nico is fine with these like morally gray areas of like he's fine leaving Percy in this vulnerable position and he's fine leaving Hazel in this vulnerable position yeah the whole yeah it's kind of messy it's kind of this whole series is very messy and it's kind of disappointing because there was so much potential but it's just messy yeah I I do really the last book that I was here for I I do feel like there is a big difference in Rick's writing between that book and this book like I was I flew through the section when I reread it and like I was so excited to like hear Percy's humor again and I was so excited when um Raina came on the page and when Nico came on the page and I remember how badass Hazel is and all of that like the series is definitely not messy but I think it was a lot to a large extent supposed to be like giving us more Percy like fanfare a little bit and it does definitely succeed at that like it is for you know I think it's really great to think critically about this of course but with with it being like a young adult novel I do feel like it gave you know t- us teenagers reading it after like loving Percy as kids like what we wanted um and it, it just it's it's fun to be back in this series and with these characters that I think Rick's more comfortable with yeah i can definitely see that and i think like son of neptune is definitely one of the strongest books from heroes of olympus i was meaning more like when i was saying messy it was like the overall story for the entirety of heroes of olympus you can yeah, tell that so rick was kind of making it up yeah, yeah he was kind of like making it up as he went along <laughs> and you can kind of see that a little bit um just in that mindset so i actually just found a post so someone went through all of the books and found the the point of view distribution between all the characters in Heroes of Olympus. So Percy actually has the most chapters in the entirety of Heroes of Olympus, followed by Annabeth, who has... is a huge jump as well. <laughs> oh, no, no, hold on, I'm wrong. So it's Percy, then Leo, then Piper, then Jason, then Annabeth, then Hazel, then Frank, then Nico, then Raina. It's so wild because I was on Seaweed Brain's... Um 
like celebration for ending Heroes Olympus like two weeks ago and they did trivia and this was literally one of the questions was like what's the order of POVs and I got it super wrong I thought Jason had the most POVs I think just because his were so draining it felt like it um but I still when you just read it off again like all I remembered was that Percy does have the most POVs I remembered nothing else and it still baffles me that Leo talked that much in this series that the fact that Piper has all those POVs but still so little character development, wild. <laughs> yeah. I think the saddest bit about it is just like I'm looking at Frank and Hazel's chapter amounts. And so Nico has 16 chapters and he only has one POV in one book. Hazel and Frank are only 10 away from the same amount of chapters from Nico and they were in more books. Like that is mad. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's clear that Rick doesn't feel like a kinship to those characters. Like, he wasn't that interested in writing them. Because he just really did the minimum. (laughs) Yeah. Like, they're in four books, and they only have POVs in two books. Son of Neptune and House of Hades. Those are the only books they have POVs in. I'm surprised at how many Annabeth has, because she's only really in three books. Yeah, and there are also her main ones. Are, so she has obviously a lot in Mark of Athena, but not as many as I thought. She has more chapters in House of Hades than she does Mark of Athena, which is weird because that's her book. <laughs> like Mark yeah. of Athena is her book and she has less chapters. It's supposed to be anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was just hard to make it both her book and the first book with the seven altogether. And that she really should have gotten, like, her own space. Which goes into my argument of why did it, why in a five-book series was it two books of setup? But. Yeah. That's just me. No, I agree. If anything, oh, that would be so interesting if Lost Hero is Jason and Percy's people. Like, it's like Lost Hero and Son of Neptune sort of, like, bound together. And it's just Jason and Percy's POVs, maybe. And maybe, like, some... Piper, Leo, Frank and Hayes were thrown in here and there. And that's just like a big first book. And the ending of that first book is them meeting up. That would have been cool. Yeah, I think that would have been cool too. Um, And just get more time with them. Because there's really so little time with the Seven and like them on the Argo too. Even though that's mostly what you think of with this series. And I would have liked to see more. I mean, we're not here to discuss that, but. (laughs) Yeah, they're only together as a Seven in technically if so for half a book of mark of athena and for half of blood of olympus i think no no for the entirety of blood of olympus they do have some so they're for, for a book and a half that's how much of a five book series <laughs> that the main seven characters are together for an extended period of time yeah that's wild since it's supposed to be them all as a collective but it's just so hard to write seven characters interacting with one another so they were you know split up at every chance yeah but anyway (laughs) so i keep pushing us ahead to other things um let's go into our discussion points of the episode which is starting with openings now this is a huge ass opening in comparison to the lost hero which was just the first two chapters this is 100 pages but um there's a lot of stuff that happens for this sort of like opening introduction to son of neptune and the whole context of everything that's going on And I think the main thing I want to mention for why I love Son of Neptune and why I love this introduction is because we are immediately in the action. 
We're immediately following Percy running. We're immediately following monsters getting involved and going after him and finding out what's going on and what's occurring. And like the context, the situation, the placement, all this sort of stuff is happening. And I know exactly what's going on. And I'm invested because things are moving. And I love it. Yeah, I think it's it's really nice to see um, this callback to the original series with him fighting the Gorgons. And also, like, I... Like, I, I agree with you that they, that Rick didn't do a great job with catching you back up with the Gaia plotline, but I think he does do a good job catching you back up with the um, Curse of Achilles plotline, with um, Percy not knowing why he's surviving against the Gorgons and everything, and it being brought back just in time to be washed away. Um, and just, like, being very quick. And I think he does do a good job in this. Like, the amnesia doesn't make sense if you think about it too much. But in just the way that Percy, like, has these, like, sprinkles of his personality still. And is like, why do I like the ocean so much? (laughs) And, like, why is the last thing I remember this, like, giant she-wolf who, like, taught me fighting um, and, and things like that. And, like, that all just being mixed into fighting and Percy having to think on the go is very Percy and it works very well. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's just, it's a really fun, like, I know obviously we have, like, an entire series of precedent for understanding Percy as a character in comparison to Jason. But, like, even some of this background stuff we didn't fully need to have because there was enough going on for us to be invested in the story because things are moving. Understanding of what's happening with the plot is occurring. And it's just, there are things happening that is getting you engaged. I know I've said that phrase a lot. It just in comparison, I know I'm being really harsh on the lost hero, um, but it just I liked that we were just getting involved straight away and things were moving so because it took it was like nearly 200 pages before we'd even like figured out what the prophecy was and what the plot's going to be <laughs> in Lost Hero. Whereas like we know the basis of most of this within the first hundred pages of what's happening with Gaia, giants are rising, no one's dying. You know, danger is coming. We already know the Feast of Fortuna, the camp's going to be attacked. That's bad. Like, things are happening. And I, I don't know, I just, I, I'm I'm chuffed. I'm glad that things are happening. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I think it shows that you can go at this speed for an introduction of a book, even with new characters, because we also do a, a fine job keeping up with Frank and Hazel and learning what we need to learn about them and becoming attached to them. Because we meet them with um, Frank fires arrows at the Gorgons and then Hazel like gives them time to escape across the River Tiber. And all of that went great. Like I understood them. I immediately got their personalities. I immediately got that like they have a good relationship. And then over the course of 100 pages, we find out a lot about um, Hazel and also like Frank's overall dynamic at least. Like I, in there's not a lot to get about Jason, so it sh- it shouldn't have taken two hundred pages. We could have gone much much quicker. That book could have been way shorter. Yeah, and it was the same with the other characters. Like this is the whole thing that also to do with the opening of this is that, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier as well. How quickly were, like Percy is able to build a dynamic and repertoire with Frank and Hazel that makes sense. It works. They're already working well as a team already in a sense because of how quickly they pick up how to work with each other in comparison to kind of the mess that was the introduction with Piper, Jason and Leah of not really having a dynamic him having them having fake memories of a friendship with him, which 
damaged immediately any understanding of a of a friendship between them because they don't know who he is and yet they think they're best friends like it's immediately causing problems and that's never addressed whereas here there's an organic relationship being built that makes sense there's logic behind it they help save each other's lives uh, help it save each other's lives like hazel saves theirs by like collapsing the tunnel but it won't last long Frank stays behind to fight them off with arrows. Percy saves Frank by, you know, killing them with the waves and stuff like that. They all save each other in this short period of time, which bonds them together. So it all makes sense. It's just, it's written so well. Like, it works, it develops a background and relationship between them, and it just carries on from there. Like, it just gets so much better in this book, and I'm obsessed. Yeah, I love their dynamic. And I think the um, plot device of the fifth cohort as like the thing that brings them all together and develops that relationship quickly was like a perfect plot device. Like one, just them being the two kids that they run into um, when Percy's, you know, bringing June into the camp. But then the fact that that like makes them stick together and like then they end up on a quest together and like gives them time to um, develop their relationships. Like that easily could have been transferred to the Lost Hero with like the fact that they were all picked up by Coach Hedge at the same time. It's like the initial, you know, meeting and then them all being brought to camp together and being like the three older kids who didn't know about any of this before and like learned about it at the same time. That could have been their bonding. Like they didn't really need the fake memories. It could have been set up more like this. And then the quest obviously gives you a lot of time to bond. That's how Percy and Annabeth bonded was going on quests. Um, So, yeah, I just think that this dynamic works a lot better and there's not it's not as complicated it's like they're genuinely just friends because percy just losing his memories doesn't affect his relationship with hazel and frank the way that jason's fake memories affect piper and leo yeah and that you make a really good point because that's the thing that i've always said is that having them be just like three people who just happen to like be brought in together would make so much sense for them actually connecting because it's a similar situation here with son of neptune yeah, the fake memory scenes just make no sense whatsoever. The whole thing is just, it's, it's, Son of Neptune should have been the blueprint. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. It, it's format is, is very good and I wouldn't have minded the last year, I don't think. Well, it still would have had Jason Leo in it, but if it had followed this format. Um, I have a question about gender in the books, can I ask you? Yeah, go for it. So I think... Uh, this is kind of convoluted, but as I was reading this morning, it really struck me that Annabeth, Reyna, and, and Nico all have this, like, overly mature for their age, carry the weight of the world dynamic to them. And I was thinking about what caused Annabeth, Reyna, and Nico to all show up to camp and be underestimated and be ostracized and have this trauma, because they all have a lot of trauma, And what is the difference between Annabeth and Reyna staying in that system and proving everyone wrong and Nico going out and doing his own thing and not caring that they rejected him, but just being like, fuck you guys and leaving. And I feel like the difference is that Nico didn't have this weight of misogyny on him, of him being like, oh, but if I do leave and if I am really what they say I am, then I've like let them be proved right. Whereas with Raina and Annabeth, if they had allowed themselves to be underestimated and allowed themselves to be ostracized and not risen to the top, it would have been like, oh, we were right about the girls. And so they felt like this need to prove themselves. 
that Nico doesn't, you know, Nico doesn't have this innate need to prove himself. So he's just like, whatever, like if this system doesn't work for me, I'll just leave it. Yeah, that is definitely interesting. I will slightly disagree with the Nico part in the sense of Rick kind of fucked up his character a little bit because of how it ends at the last uh, in the last Olympian of everyone accepting him, bringing him into camp, calling him a hero, and then suddenly he's going on about how everyone rejected him again and supposedly everyone turned on him very quickly and I thought he was creepy and weird. I'm like considering everything and also none of them thought he was creepy and weird in the first place in the battle of the labyrinth he did that and then he perceived all of this like it's very clear that by like going to trials of apollo for example none of that's the case he just does it to himself so it was more of a self uh, what was it called um not self-sacrificing um self-inflicted self-sabotaging that's it Yes, I was going to say self-inflicting, but no, that doesn't make sense. Well, it's technically that too. But he very much has a self-sabotaging way due to his own personal trauma of like, oh, people are going to think about think this about me anyway, so I might as well prove them right and go out. So he's kind of doing the proving them right in his own mind. So it's maybe slightly different. But I definitely agree if Annabeth and Rainer kind of let the expectations crushed them and kind of had given up then it definitely would have been cause for like oh it's because they're girls blah 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 and also in the case yeah. of the incredible Leah Savage-Jeffries in the Percy Jackson adaptation now there'll be the additional caveat of Annabeth Chase being a girl of colour who is underestimated by of her intelligence of her skill because she is not only a woman she is also a woman of colour yeah I just think it's an interesting dynamic of, like, the privilege of getting to be treated as an individual and not having to, like, represent your entire community. And, like, because you don't – you feel this responsibility of not making it harder for the next person um, by, like, proving people right. Whereas Nico is just like, fuck you, I don't care if you think you're right about me. And and even does it to the extreme of being like, I'm going to go live in the underworld now because I'm pretty sure you think I'm creepy. Yet he does nothing to combat that. He, like, really leans into the emo aesthetic. So I don't... You're sending mixed messages, Nico. If you don't want people to think you're creepy, maybe don't make your entire personality being a son of Hades. Maybe wear something other than black. It's just my advice. It ends up working out fine. But I do feel like you leaned into it a little bit, Nico. Yeah, like, considering that was not remotely his personality beforehand, and then he made being sad his entire personality oh, i say he rick <laughs> made being sad nico's entire personality sad and gay later on as well sad gay and traumatized was his only characteristics and i mean the gay part was fandom related because like he is not the most accepting of it admittedly past trauma fair enough but it's just yeah it's kind of come on nico <laughs> like calm down a bit <laughs> Yeah, I'm just so excited for his life in Trials of Apollo because it's so much better than what we get of him in Tears of Olympus. This is like his absolute lowest. Yeah, and it makes no sense. Like I say this all the time, it makes no sense. <laughs> it makes no sense why he's at this point because he was accepted, he was brought into the camp, people were happy to have him around. And then suddenly he's kind of like, oh no, they turned on me. I'm like, no, <laughs> it's only been a couple of months, firstly since all of that and he disappeared very quickly afterwards like it's brought up and just, anyway um, <laughs> um we know what was thing, oh 
Oh, yes, that is true. Who, but oh, that's the thing I want to mention to you because this is like a very interesting part. If Percy and Annabeth weren't POV characters and were mentor characters, Will could have been part of the seven to help actually develop that relationship before anything happened. Oh, I love that idea. I think that would be amazing. And it would be kind of cool if, like, Nico had his breakthrough with Reyna not in the very last book. Like, if they had gotten that, um, like, uh, relationship and, like, mentor dynamic and, like, this. Like, let's combine Lost Hero and Son of Neptune so that we have four books of the actual quest. And then have Nico, like, become a reasonable human being in, like, book two. And then that way he's ready to develop his relationship with Will in three through five. And then the development of the the only major queer couple in the Percy Jackson universe doesn't have to be off the page. Exactly. Yes. There's all of that, like having the seven as is just removing Percy and Annabeth and putting in Nico and Will and still having Raina just be that sort of outside influence, I think would just work well. Like there was just like I also like the fact the idea of Nico and Hazel being closer as siblings, both like him having this like coming in as the amnesiac for the Son of Neptune sort of situation, and him and Hazel finding out, oh, they're both kids of Pluto and that connection and them going on this quest together. And considering it's a quest for death, it makes so much sense that the one of the most well, both like both he and Hazel are incredibly powerful demigods the two most powerful death kids basically going to help bring death back that would have been so much more interesting than because it didn't even make sense to me why a son of neptune was needed (laughs) to you know bring everything back because like half of it's not even by sea it's just getting to alaska that's the only sea part that's it (laughs) you could have flown yeah, they could, especially considering, well, I don't know, I guess it's, I'm assuming Zeus probably hates Nico as well in the air, but like, it'd probably be more fine <laughs> considering like but Nico, Nico hasn't gone out of his way. pissed him off. Like, oh yeah. Yeah, like, I don't he, think he has. Like, Percy pisses the gods off. Like, he has a, a feud with multiple Olympians because he's a brat. Like, Nico hasn't done that. Nico keeps to himself. I feel like Zeus would be like, you mind your business and you're just, like, sad and gay. Like, you can fly. It's fine. Yeah. I just, it would have definitely add to, like, its simpler situations. But, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it's, it's interesting. That's basically all I'm going to go with that. I think I like the idea of Nico considering everything he went through in the first book and how that first series ended with him kind of being accepted and brought in i like the idea of like he was brought in and accepted so much that people are worried because he's been gone for so long that to like really kind of add in this additional like element of when he finds out and gets his memory back that everyone was looking for him and trying to figure out where he'd gone to have that feeling of like wow people they do actually care Kind of like the jar situation, but less people like, oh, but how can we really trust him? Like, <laughs> have actually people, you know, care about his safety in life? I don't know. I just, I like the idea of all of that, which is why, for everyone who's listening, actually, I am working on a series on my YouTube channel, which is a rewriting of Heroes of Olympus book by book. And this is one of the big things that I'm going to be introducing is that it's Nico who's gone missing, not Percy. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I think it would add such 
such interesting conflict with like there could be some kids at camp who do think that he just left because he's done that in the past but then like the kids who actually know him and like support him being worried and then when he does come back and get his memories back like it would just make such a solid uh relationship for him yes and the thing that i like about it is this idea of like having this whole annabeth and percy as mental characters is that they're also out there looking for him because they're like we know this kid like we're worried about him and having that so when they're coming in here and there throughout the series to kind of offer advice they have connections because they are these mental characters they know about nico they know how to develop a relationship with nico and also will he'll be part of the seven this is completely off topic (laughs) we'll talk about this off camera so i'm not filling out too much of the episode but um the only thing to kind of go into is a little bit of the characters and honestly i don't have much to say for Percy's characterization in these chapters. Like, the only thing is, like, he's just kind of here. <laughs> like, he's just there. Like, he's in the story, he's getting involved, he's himself, but not fully himself, and that's just kind of it. Like, he's cool. I'm I'm vibing. He's vibing. That's how it is. <laughs> yeah, Percy's just being Percy, but it's not, it's not like, a huge um, example of character growth because that's the established version of him that we already knew. Yeah. Whereas with Hazel, I've got quite a few things to say about Hazel in that uh, her backstory, I think, is the best. She has the best story. Although the one thing I do want to mention is that um, Hades Pluto has a type in that Marie and Maria, those are the two mortal women he has relationships with. And it's kind of like, come on now. (laughs) Like, Rick, could you not come up with anything more original? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's always been insane to me. Like, why couldn't you? And I know, like, part of it was that he came up with um, Nico and Bianca's mom's name first. And then with Hazel's mom's name, like, it goes into the stereotype of, like, um, of that being a name associated with voodoo. But still, like, be creative, Rick. There are so many names. Just pull up that baby name website and pick something else. Yeah, especially considering there is like an overlap between these two women because he beats both of them during the 40s and they have similar names. It makes me wonder which one he met first though because I can never remember who he met first. I think Hazel was technically first. I think you're right. I think it's just confusing because Nico's older, but that's just because uh, like he was older when he his time freeze he's aged after it more than hazel's aged after hers so he becomes older but really he's younger than hazel yeah so that's so yeah so she's 19 i'm just looking up their birth dates basically so she was born in 1928 nico d'angelo birthday he was born in 32 so yeah she came first so he literally was like i met this woman in new orleans called marie hey i've met this woman called maria in italy (laughs) it's a vibe (laughs) Like, oh my god <laughs> just it just and the fact that it's not that far apart is like three it's like four years between let's <laughs> just say that's funny <laughs> but what else um are you thinking about hazel in terms of kind of like the only other thing that i wrote down is just the age part but we've talked about that before so that's why yeah i mean overall i i just love her as a character i feel like she has a very unique personality something we haven't seen before in one of his characters um and i just love her in this book and i love her backstory and everything obviously i i I desperately wish rick would have invested in a sensitivity reader 
But I think overall, like, she's a very enjoyable character. And I really like what the fandom does do with her, even though she definitely is underrated. No, I I agree. And I don't know. I just think it's... She's awesome. I love her. And um, she deserves the best in the world. Um, <laughs> but kind of going into overall sort of final thoughts. So a few of these things I've brought up um, previously. Um, the one thing I want to mention, which is something that pops up in... I think it's the final chapter for Percy, is it's kind of weird to me that the prophecy of the seven was made out to be this huge thing. Like it was Rachel's first prophecy. It's the next great big prophecy. But we find out in this book that this prophecy has existed for thousands of years from the Sibylline books. So Rachel's first prophecy wasn't her first prophecy. Yeah, it definitely brought up something interesting about like the difference between having the oracles and having the sibling books of are the are are all the prophecies already written and the oracles just reveal them at certain times? Um or are they like truly something that the oracles uh get from Apollo in the moment? And like do the Greeks and Romans always have access to similar prophecies or the same prophecies, or is it only because this involves both camps? Yeah, it adds a lot of questions that are never answered, <laughs> as far as I'm aware. But I just remember reading it and being like, oh, that's kind of shit. <laughs> like, it was made this huge sort of deal when Rachel gives her first prophecy at the end of The Last Olympian. And then, like, in chapter four of Son of Neptune, it's kind of like, eh, we already knew. I think it does bring up, like, a funny dynamic between the Romans and the Greeks of just how much more established and like how much more longevity there is with the Romans, whereas the Greeks are flying by the seat of their pants. So this um this huge weighty prophecy that's been around for centuries like caught them totally off guard. Um and that's very much the Greeks versus the Romans, like throughout the series. That is very true. Like I know the the like ancient Greece well what is yeah, ancient Rome lasted longer than Greece, didn't it? Yeah, no. I don't know. Yeah. Um <laughs> it's I'm bad at history. I don't understand years. Um also they do years really weird. But um yeah, I kind of I kind of get it, but at the same time it was kind of sad because I was like that was like Rachel's thing and they've just taken it. <laughs> I like Rachel. Give Rachel her thing. But it it makes sense like logically like the weight of ancient like Rome, the, the weight of Rome definitely six, has gone on longer in terms of longevity, in terms of its influence on modern day in comparison to Greece. Like obviously lots of people think about the Greek gods, but most of the stuff that we reference to quite a lot end up being related to Roman times and like even stuff like, oh, so I'm from the UK, <laughs> accent and all. And we have like, mosaics being found from when Roman in, uh, Rome invaded Britain like it's still something that's discussed something that's still found um and it has like a huge influence on how we run things um and it's yeah so it, it makes sense but yeah I'm just disappointed because <laughs> I like that Rachel had a thing and the books took it away but the books are kind of cool though yeah, I do. I do wish Rachel had more autonomy because she was brought in as like a love triangle plot device. And so you always want to see her like get her own story. And I, I do wish like this is looking ahead, but even in like Trials of Apollo, she had a more prominent role because she's still like non-existent in those books. 
yeah she's just kind of pops in here and there and those but yeah rachel deserved better i think that's what we're getting from this you know what we'd love to see a rachel standalone book because she knows about all the mythologies like there's a reference in trials of apollo of her seeing brooklyn house i mean she knows she knows all and there should be a book about her going on adventures and interacting with all these different mythological places That'd be cool. Even the, like bringing the Rickroll and presents like references as well. <laughs> like she's just seeing all of that shit. She's just like catching on to everything. That'd be hilariously cool. Yeah, that would be amazing because she could be the like connector between everything. Yeah, like if we, like people are talking about bringing in like a full like Avengers multiverse book, you could just do that with Rachel and just having her be like sorting shit out by being like, okay, so you guys are having a disagreement. This is how I'm going to deal with this. Like being the, the moderator or everything. I don't know. It'd be funny. Uh, and it gives her a role. And we, she deserves more. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I think the only other thing that I want to mention, and it's more me just being confused about the mythology that Rick kind of picks and chooses, in the sense that... So it says in this book that the giants were created you know to fight against the gods because Gaia was mad that they killed Kronos but in mythology the giants were created the moment that Kronos castrated his dad and you know not when the gods killed Kronos and even Gaia Gaia was the one who helped protect and raise Zeus and she is what, like, admittedly, there are different versions of the myth, but it, like, the most known one is the fact that the wife of Kronos goes to their parents, Gaia and Urania, saying, like, I need you to protect my children. So Gaia suggests the rock situation. She suggests hiding Zeus away, and she takes him in. So it just, it makes no sense that she's, like, the, the main enemy of this series based on how mythology works. The giants make sense. But Gaia doesn't for me. And like knowing this mythology just makes it more confusing. Just have the giants. You don't need you don't need Gaia as well. Just have one or the other. I've never loved Gaia being the central villain just because she's sort of I mean, she's essentially Mother Earth, and I don't know why you would make Mother Earth the villain. Because then she's essentially like upset about global warming, and that's what we think is unreasonable, and that feels completely reasonable to me. Um, and, and it does fall into the thing of like, well, I'm not that into the Western world. Like, I'm fine if it does collapse. So like, I don't want Kronos to be in charge, but the Western world is not what I'm concerned about. And like, I don't want the giants to win because their, their position is evil for sure. But Gaia and her idea of like letting nature take back over, I don't have a fundamental issue with. So I don't think it works super well. Yeah, it, it the logic was not logicking. Um, this is the slight issue of like I feel like when you pick and choose some myths, it doesn't always end up making sense. But um, that is more just like it's not necessarily a nitpick because it definitely doesn't make sense why she is the main villain. Um, but, um, it's just it's interesting to think like how like the main known stories are contradicting most of what's happening in Heroes of Olympus which is somewhat funny, but also kind of sad. Yeah, it's wild. Um, especially because this is so many people's introduction to mythology. And so like to go back and learn more and realize that it's not really 
the most accurate version is always an interesting experience. I guess. Especially considering there was like there was a way to do this by having just the giants be the bad guys. And maybe even have Gaia pop up to warn demigods because, you know, the giants have always been a little bit too messy. Like they may be her kids, but they're they're also going to be destroying Earth. And, you know, as much as humans are doing damage, she doesn't really want the entire Earth destroyed because she is Earth. Like, it would be interesting if she is introduced in some way, but it is as warnings. I, You know, the whole Juno thing of, like, she's trying to give out some warnings to some demigods. Gaia is the one doing that as well. Like, she is warning people, but people think she's the bad one because she keeps popping up in times of crisis. But she's popping up to warn them instead. And that's, like, a huge twist reveal of, we think Gaia's the bad one. But, no, no, she's been trying to warn everyone all along. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. Um, and I, I do very much like the idea of having the giants just be the villains. Because um, that's pretty accurate to mythology. Yeah. Um, but I think that is all. Do you have like any final sort of thoughts that uh, you want to mention in relation to going to Camp Jupiter? I don't think so. Um, I, you know, I stand by Nico in all of his actions and i always will and i also think that i wouldn't survive in camp jupiter and i would much prefer camp half-blood personally for sure and on that note uh, for everyone who's tuning in you know what is about to come and that is this week's question of the episode the first question of the episode for son of neptune and i want to know is how do you feel about this opening section of son of Neptune. Obviously, that'll be going up on all of our social media. So let me know your thoughts via that question or email in if you have something more in depth to say. Megan, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolute blast. Uh, be sure to bleh, to tell everyone um, where they can find you, and all that stuff will be linked down below. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Um, you can find the Monsters Woman podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Anchor. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at the Monstrous Woman Pod, and you can email us at themonstrouswomanpod at gmail.com with any questions or concerns or anything else. Um, and then you can find my personal work on uh, Instagram at Megan Peterson Writes. All right, awesome. And then it's going to be down below, like I said, people. So be sure to go check out Megan's stuff and listen into the Monstrous Women podcast because it's awesome. Um, and as always, to everyone listening, thank you so much for tuning in. See you next time. Bye. To plug where you can find our podcast, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audio Boom, Stitcher, and basically where we listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, between episodes, you can find the Best Damn Camp on various social media at Best Damn Camp Pod on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to email me with your thoughts on the episode, you can email the Best Damn Camp at hotmail.com, or if you want to support the podcast, you can head over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash a healthy dose of Fran, which is linked in the episode show notes for things like early access to episodes and other exclusive perks. Want more Royal Universe content? Check me out on YouTube at a healthy dose of Fran. And if you want to support my writing career, drop me a follow at a dose of Fran on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Again, thank you all for tuning in. As always, I've been Fran, your very own hunter, and I'll see, just me to you all next time. Bye.